Hi there, it's Andrew here with another edition of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus Home Bible Studies in Hebrews. We're on study 14 of the podcast and we're looking at endurance and grace in Hebrews chapter 12. It's been quite a mountain that we've climbed going through Hebrews. Um, now we're coming to Mount Zion as it tells us. So let's look into the chapter together. But first of all, commend ourselves to God in prayer. Our Father, we come to you. We thank you for the privileges we have as Christians. We think of the Jewish privileges and, and how they had the law in, in their own um, tongue. We remember that they had the great outward privileges that were given to them in the Old Testament. But as we come to the end of, of Hebrews, we see a far deeper and richer tra tradition of privilege that we have as Christians. As we come not to Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, and what it really means to know uh, a God of grace, uh, a God who has brought us into the blessings of, of new covenant. And our Father, we would pray that you would help us to understand these things more. We just leave ourselves in your presence and pray that as we discuss these things together, that uh, your name might be glorified. In the Lord's name we ask it. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, I think what we'll do first of all is read the whole chapter. Uh, so if you have it uh, in front of you, Hebrews chapter 12, you can get the uh, worksheets, as you know, uh, from the podcast. Um, we'll read it uh, together and, and we'll go through it bit by bit. Hebrews chapter 12, reading from verse number one, uh, reading from the New King James Version. Therefore... We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, that could just be the author and finisher or the leader and perfecter of faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're with, you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? They indeed for a few days chastened us as seems best to them, but he for a prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be disciplined, but rather healed. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it beg that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly am afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now his promise saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or let us hold on to grace, or let us be thankful, different ways it's translated, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We thrill over Hebrews chapter 11, the great examples and exploits of faith. Those men that stood for God, the women that, that received strength and all these wonderful stories that are in the background of Hebrews 11. But now in chapter 12, the writer wants to bring those truths and bring them home to his present audience. You'll remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number one. We, we put it like this. Faith is the giving substance to of things hoped for. In other words, those hoped for things, those things that are in the future, you bring them into the presence and a reality in your life by faith, by faith. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or the testing and proving in your life of things that are not in the seen realm. They're not things that you see in front of you with a visual uh, sight, but rather something that is invisible but very real. And you bring them into your life and you test them and prove them by faith. That's how we understood that first verse of Hebrews 11. Now, here we have this audience that he's speaking to, and they have been brought 
up to date, as it were, at the end of chapter 11, with the fact that God has provided something better for us, that they with us should not be made perfect. Uh, and so there's this thought in which they're being called into the great line of the faithful. Uh, and that that is where we got to at the end of chapter 11. They're being called to exercise faith in the unseen God. They're being called to exercise um, faith in the word of God for the future. So they're to bring the future into the present. They're to bring the unseen into the seen realm the, with the eyes of faith in that sense. And so now we come to this chapter where the rubber hits the road. They've heard about all these great people, these examples. And now the practical message is going to be brought home to these Hebrews. How are they going to give evidence to this real faith? Well, they're going to do it by enduring by facing the suffering that they've been called into, by responding to the difficult circumstances as God would have them to. We're also going to see another warning, uh, the last of the major warning passages in Hebrews where Esau is brought before us in the middle here uh, from about verse 14 or 15 down to the end of the chapter. This exhortation to, to go in for uh, uh, to go in for faith and, and to go in for uh, an understanding of grace. We're going to think about that in more detail when we get there. And finally, the great privileges of the Christian position are brought before us. In contrast to the Jewish position, uh, we're brought not to Mount Sinai with all its terror uh, and, 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 and darkness but we're brought to Mount Zion with all its joy and grace. Uh, and he's going to contrast these two positions for us to think over. And then he's going to bring his final exhortation of the chapter home to his audience. It's a chapter that's full of big, uh, very vital pictures that are drawn for us. We're going to see the arena shortly. He's going to bring us back into the Old Testament. And we see those two young men, uh, Esau as he comes in and he's now eating his, his lentil stew and, and, and he's giving up all the future blessings, the unseen blessings that he had. He's giving them up for present enjoyment. And the danger is that they would do that. They would go back to Judaism and uh, not those who were truly trusting and relying on the Lord, of course, but those who were just on the verge of it. They would, go, they would go back to Judaism and they would take up the lentil soup, as it were, and they would enjoy the present blessings and they would uh, present reality uh, and enjoyments rather than the future blessings that God was offering them in Christianity. And so that's the vivid picture in the center section. And then these two mountains are brought before us at the end of the chapter. It's a wonderful chapter to read over and think about from that perspective. Now, I've really entitled this chapter Endurance and Grace. Uh, and I'm going to break the chapter down, verse 1 to 29 uh, of chapter 12, into two main sections. 1 to 13, the importance of endurance in the life of faith. We'll think about that. And then from verse 14 to 29, the importance of grace in the life of faith. Now, 
I would further subdivide each of these sections into two as well. So we've got the big two, as it were, that run through the whole chapter and the importance of endurance in the life of faith. You'll see that very clearly um, by the fact that it starts with the Lord enduring the cross, despising the shame. And it goes on to speak about us enduring chastening and, and lifting up the hands that hang down. It's all about endurance. Um, and yet it's subdivided into two little sections. He's going to speak about running the race, first one to two, maybe three. And then he's going to speak about responding to chastening or discipline, verse three to 13. So that's the first section. The second section, the importance of grace in the life of faith. I'm going to say there's two main sections there too. Uh, verse 14 to 17, he's going to speak about falling short of grace, not understanding what grace really is and turning away from it as Esau did. And then the alternative to that is verse number 18 to 29, holding on to grace. Let us have grace. Let's hold on to grace, he'll say, towards the end of the chapter. So that's sort of the general breakdown. Let's look at this specific section. First of all, the importance of endurance in the life of faith, running the race, verse one to three. As we come to this section, the writer's going to paint a vivid picture. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance a race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's consider him. And so on. So the picture appears to be that of the games. In these ancient times, there were the Corinthian games and the Olympic games and so on. And you're in the arena and there's a cheering crowd willing you on, as it were, and you're running in the race. And the crowd around you is this great cloud of witnesses. This is chapter 11. They're witnesses. They're not witnesses so much of you, although that might be true too, if you look at um, some of the other passages where this kind of analogy is used, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for example. But Actually, they're witnessing to the life of faith. They're witnessing to a God who can be depended on. You look at all the examples of chapter 11. Some of them um, had in their lifetime some kind of acknowledgement of God, the God of, um, of their faith. Sometimes they are waiting for a future day when that will be brought out. But the fact is, here they all are, and they're the witnesses. You look at that crowd, and you can draw inspiration from them, the, the great men and women of the past who have stood for God in the most difficult circumstances. And so we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And we're to draw encouragement from us. There's this cheering crowd willing us on. We look closely and we notice they have lived that life. They have proved their God and they're all there. Now you're the one in the arena. You're the one who has to perform. And as you watch them, you draw strength from them. You take off all unnecessary clothes, as you would see these athletes do, and the weights you're carrying are removed. You, you see the athletes and they set down their bags and, and they strip themselves for the race and they make sure all the little things are, are, are just right and nothing to distract them. 
And so he looks at them and he says, now listen, every weight you've got to lay it aside. The sin which easily trips us up and snares us, the little things around our feet that might just set us off so that we cannot run the race. And then he says, run with endurance, the race set before us. It's an endurance race, a marathon, not a sprint. You're there for the duration. You're not there to be the fastest at the beginning so much as just to set yourself that you're going to run this race right to the end. You look by faith and there is someone there who is, if you like, the, the great ruler is at the games, just the way Caesar would have had his royal box and so on. And the ruler at the games, though, in, in, in your life in that sense is Jesus. You'll notice that name, Jesus, not Christ or the Son of God. Of course, those are true of him too. But Jesus is the one who is truly human, the one who has walked that pathway of dependence himself. The one who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He's the author, the leader, and the, the perfecter of faith. In other words, he's given that race that you're in its very character. He has got the record. And you look up and you see him. You know, you, you sometimes hear these tennis players and they're playing their, their, their hero on the court and they're just amazed by the fact that they can play this person who they've maybe grown up watching or whatever. And, and, and they're just mesmerized. And they draw inspiration from it and play out of their skin. Well, there's a sense in which so much more. We look off to Jesus and we, we see him and he has run the race for us. And he is the leader and the perfecter of faith. You'll notice that he brought the future into the present. He brought the unseen into the seen realm of his experience. Who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So he walked that pathway of difficulty leading to the ultimate prize. He did not, as it were, see the, 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 the reality of, of being at the right hand of God before he went through the suffering. He knew that that was at the end. He knew that at God's right hands there were ple pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. He knew that. And so he acted in faith, if we can put it like that. And so he was marked by dependence, and he walked that way himself. And now we see he's on the throne. You look off to Jesus. He has run the race. He has been successful. Um, and he's now at the right hand of the throne of God. Now consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And so they have these sinners are, are were pressing in in his life. There was hostility there. There was difficulty. There were sinners. They were against him and they were against themselves. Some of the translations translate this. Uh, so they were actually acting in opposition to themselves. They didn't realize it when they were doing that. And here these Hebrew Christians are called to pass through a similar way as the Lord Jesus. They're called to face off with Jews that, that maybe their family members or people that they know who have opposed them and imposing them, they're opposing themselves. They don't realize it. 
And we are called to run this race to bring the future into the present. Now, secondly, it's not only running a race, this endurance, it's about responding to chastening or discipline. This is verse three to verse number 16, sorry, 13. You'll notice what it says here. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You say, in effect, like, don't be thinking you've gone the whole way here. You're still in the body. There's others that have gone right to the very end in their endurance for the Lord, and you're not there yet. Don't think that you're particularly special. And if in the first section, he has given them a motive for endurance, verse one, and the man of endurance, the perfect man of endurance, verse two, and the medicine for endurance, considering him who endured such contradiction. Now in the second section, he's going to break up this whole subject of suffering and, and difficulty in another way. He's going to look at it in a different way. He's going to give us some practical realism and suffering. He say, listen, you haven't gone the whole way. You haven't had to. Perhaps there's a negative side to this, but there's a practical realism here too. And struggling against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So you've not been called to walk that way as yet. So don't be thinking, don't be overwhelmed, as it were, already. There's this practical realism and suffering. And then he's going to give us the purpose of chastisement in suffering from verse 5 to 11. And then he'll give us a prescription for healing in verse 12 and 13. So let's look at that in a little more detail. We've got this practical realism. We, we tend to maximize our own suffering. And he says, now, listen, you don't need to do that. You've not really had to go the whole way. It's not really like the Savior. The Savior, he went through death. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down. He went right through it. He was the one who went to the maximum. And we haven't necessarily been called to that. We haven't had to resist to the point of bloodshed. They needed to have a realistic view of their suffering. Uh, we must remember our loyalty to, to Christ in, in all of this. And we must remember to try and walk the same and run the same pathway. Now, let, let's move on to the second wee bit here, the purpose of chastisement in suffering. There are lessons from this chastening, this, this discipline, if you like, that can help us in our lives. Notice in verse 5 and 6, the Lord's love in allowing chastening. It says in verse number five, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you're reproved by him. For the Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. So what he's saying here, it would seem, is that it's key to remember that when you're going through suffering and difficulty and chastisement, as it were, that you understand that as far as the Lord is concerned, we are loved by him. He's allowing it in our lives. He's allowing it to happen because of his love for us. Now, that's something that's easy to forget. Uh, you're suffering the, the more natural way is to think somehow the Lord doesn't love you, but the, the Lord's love is actually being seen in the suffering. If, 
if we were neglectful of our children and we never uh, corrected them and just let them live uh, whatever way they liked, uh, that would not be loving them. We would not really be caring for them. Uh, the fact that sometimes those little children have to learn that there's limitations and they have to learn there's consequences and there has to be punishment at times, that is because they have to learn that you love them enough not to let them just go their own way. And so in our lives, the Lord's love allows suffering, chastisement, chastening to happen to us. And this is the very point. He says, don't take the, the Lord's discipline lightly. One of the translation has it. Um, but rather, um, in, um, don't despise it. Uh, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he received. Now, this is a quotation from, from uh, Proverbs, of course. Now, then moving on, um, it says in the next verse, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as son. Or some translations have enduring, endure suffering as discipline, God is dealing with you as son. So in other words, you're called upon to endure you're called upon to look at it uh, in, in a certain light as discipline, as a learning process. And so we go through things in life. We are to learn from them every day that things aren't the way they should be in our lives. We've got to say, what am I learning? What is the Lord teaching me? That's a challenge to me. Uh, so often I go through lives, my life, and I, I put my head in the sand and I don't really, perhaps I'm just despising the chastening of the Lord, or being discouraged, just fainting under it, and not saying, what can I learn? Every day, we sometimes say, is a school day. The Lord's love. What about God's link? Notice the father and son uh, link that's emphasized here. It says here that, that uh, God is dealing with you as sons. Now, everybody is a, every Christian, I should say, uh, brought into the family of God as a child of God. That, that's the thought of, of, of an, uh, a relationship you now have with the father. But actually, another way you're looked upon is as adult sons or as sons. And the thought in sonship, um, there's obviously a thought of resemblance, and like, but there's also the thought here of, of, of a dignity. God is actually dignifying you. Uh, not when you're, when you're mommy or daddy, when you're growing up, um, they discipline you. They don't just go around disciplining all the kids in the street. No, no, no. They, they focus in on the ones that are that they have a relationship with. And, and we're being dealt with as sons. And God brings us into circumstances so that we are changed. Um, so there's this thought of, of sonship. If we didn't have any change in our lives, it would call into question, if there wasn't any chastening, it would call into question whether we were actually real, that if our Christianity was real at all. Um, and perhaps this is calling them to think about it in their own lives as well. Notice the third point, uh, verse number nine and 10. The father of spirits, this is the lofty goal of our chastening. We are to submit ourselves to the father of spirits. This is interesting. We respected our natural fathers when we were growing up. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of Spirits? And so God has called us not necessarily to, 
to always go to the full extent in suffering. Most suffering doesn't call us to lay down our lives, as he said at the start, but rather to submit to the Lord's chastening in our lives so that we might live, that we might develop, that we might grow in our Christian experience. Uh, and so this is verse number nine and 10. Furthermore, we've had you, these human fathers, so much more we, we should be subject to the father of spirits. You see, these human fathers, for a few days they chasten us as seems best to them, but he for our profit that we might be partaker of his holiness. This really brings us the result of chastening that we're calling for, uh, that, that the Lord's calling for in their life. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to have some of his character, the perfect one. That, that, that we'll be like him, that we'll have his holiness, his purity, his goodness uh, in our life. Uh, chastening doesn't seem to be joyful for the present, I'll tell us, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, so if we accept and submit to the training that God has for us, then we will be more like God at the end of the process and in a, a, a more deep practical relationship with him we'll be partakers of his shares of his holiness and also um have the peaceable fruit of righteousness we were thinking of job in the bible study a great example of this where at the beginning you know job was seen as a perfect man in the sense of mature and developed in certain aspects of his spiritual life you'll remember that uh, and through the whole process the, the the refining fire that he went through at the end of the process, he says, now I know, now I can, now I see you, God. He, he says, now I understand. I heard you with the hearing of the ear, but now may I see you. So he has seen God in his experience in a deeper way. And so that had transformed him. And, and through all the suffering, he comes out the other end as a, a more a mature, deeper, um, he had partaken now in something of the character of his God. And that's why God calls us to these difficult things. So Job's a great example of someone who responded to the different the hand of God in his life in a, in, in a particular way. Now let's move on to the second section briefly. Uh, the importance of grace in the life of faith. Now, so we've looked at endurance in the life of faith, but what about grace? Look at verse number 14. Uh, to 17 pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the lord look looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of god lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person like esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright for you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So this is the thought of falling short of grace. I'm thinking about this, uh, about Esau. Uh, what was it about Esau? Here he was, and he was confronted with the fact he had great blessings in his life that he despised and ignored and eventually sold. Uh, he had a birthright. He had privileges. And here he was, and he, because he exercised no faith, uh, and because that birthright involved, uh, if you like, a promise from God, an unseen thing, and a future unseen thing for that, uh, something in the future and something that was unseen, 
Um, he had no thought about it. And so when he came in famished after hunting and he says, you know, give me this pottage or else I die. What will my good will my, uh, what good will my birthright be to me as it were? Then he, what he was doing was he was placing more importance on the scene realm and his experience and the here and now. He wasn't thinking about the future and the blessing that God wanted for him and had promised to him, as it were, through uh, being the firstborn and uh, the, with the birthright. Uh, and so here he's a great example of where these uh, Hebrew Christians are at. They're just, they're just, and I say Christians in the inverted comma sense, they, they had outwardly accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. They were in the edge uh, of of coming into the good of that in a deeper way. Some of them already were. Most of them were already believers in the Lord Jesus, as we would term it. But there were those around the edge. And there was just the danger that having, having understood the privileges of the Christian position, that they would shrink back from that place, go back to Judaism, and take the here and now benefits of Judaism and forget about the future unseen promises of Christianity. And so they would not be exercising faith. This is back to Hebrews 11 and 1. Uh, and so this would be a falling short of grace. This is really the importance of grace in the life of faith. You have to come into an acceptance of the promise that God offers. You have to come into, you know, so many Christians, sadly, um, or I'm speaking again more generally of the word Christian here, uh, many people come along to churches and they've never discovered what faith is and what grace is. And they've never accepted God at his word and trusted the Savior and come into the blessing of eternal life. And so they're just on the edge. And the danger is that they'll turn away from it and go back and they'll take rather the, the lentil uh, stew and they'll go away. So, so this is the way it's being uh, put uh, in this passage falling short of the grace of God. The danger is that if some went back, they might draw others with them that are just on the verge of accepting Christ and, and of entering into Christ and entering into the blessing uh, that was there for them. And so they would be taking others with him. So he was worried about that. But notice there's another thing, and this brings us to our last section, and I'll just quickly sum this up uh, as we conclude. Holding on to grace. Uh, He's going to bring to them, to their experience, the two mountains, either um, Mount uh, Sinai or Mount Zion. Uh, and these two mountains are there. And they represent something. Sinai represents the law, the God of judgment, the thou shalt not, thou shalt, and so on. It represents the old covenant, the covenant that Judaism is associated with, the Mosaic covenant. And, and it was a scary place. It was a place where Moses is in fear and trembling. There was the burning and the fire and the blackness and the darkness and the tempest. Look at verse 18. There's the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words. And they actually pleaded not to hear any words more. Uh, and the, the mountain wasn't really so much a place of gathering because if anybody touched that mountain, they, they were to be killed. And it was just a terrifying place. But you, he says, now you who have 
understand what Christianity is, you're coming to a different place. You're coming to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This is the place of grace. This is the new covenant. This is the place where God dwells and, and he wants to have his people with him. The heavenly Jerusalem. He's speaking in a sense of heaven, but in another sense about all the blessings that are ours as Christians. Uh, to the innumerable company of angels, to the uh, general assembly, it says here, a festive gathering, the church of the firstborn ones. What? Why firstborn? Well, they're the ones with the privilege, aren't they? So, so he's saying, listen, you've been called to this place of privilege. You, you are they're registered in heaven. God, the judge of all is there, to the spirit of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This covenant that, that brings blessing and forgiveness and, and not so much thou shalt, thou shalt not, but uh, I will bless them. Their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. Uh, and he wants them to appreciate what they've been brought to in Christianity. To the blood of sprinkling, he says, that, he go, that speaks better things than that of Abel. And you remember Abel's blood cried out for judgment. Sinai cries out for judgment. But now he says, now listen, this, the blood of the new covenant that was shed, it, it, it cries out not just for, not for judgment, but for forgiveness, for blessing, for grace. And the, the, the foundation of that new covenant and the blessings that we have as Christian, it's all linked to the death of Christ on the cross. And so he says, listen, this is what you have. You have all this. And so in verse 18 to 24, as we've tried to sum up there, he speaks of the wonders of grace by contrasting these two mountains. So holding on to grace and appreciating the blessings that we have, what does that really mean? mean well, first of all, he'll speak about the terrifying law of God and then the privilege of the grace of God in these two mountains. But then he comes not so much to the wonders of grace, but to the warning of rejecting grace. Come to verse 24 with me for a minute. Now, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke in error, back in Sinai, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? So he's saying, now listen, there's a risen uh, Christ on, 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 on God's throne, and he speaks from heaven. Uh, back then, he shook the earth with his voice. Now he promises again, and he's quoting from the prophets, as he often does. He's been quoting from the, the law and the prophets. Uh, yet once more, I'll not only shake the earth, but also heaven. And this yet once more indicates that the things that we see around us that are in any way Going to uh, that are visible and tangible, they're going to be shaken, they're going to be taken away. And so, all that's left is the intangible, the unseen, the, the eternal. You'll remember Paul the Apostle puts it like this those things that are seen are, are temporal. The things that we can touch and taste and handle now, they're, they're temporal, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And the, the temporary things are going to be shaken by the voice of God who speaks from heaven. He says, we, we, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And so what we have to do is, is to hold on to grace. It's to understand that, that God has promised us these blessings. That we have this forgiveness. 
that we rely not on ourselves, but on the blood of Christ. And, and, and once we have understood that position of, of grace, then we are in the good of salvation in that sense of the word, in the fullest sense of the word. Now, remember, of course, when I tell you about these things, where we're at, we're at the border of the land ever since chapter three and four, we're, we're just about to step into Christ. Some have already stepped into Christ. He, he believes many of them are truly saved. He tells us that in chapter six, but he's just so worried about those who are standing on the edge of blessing and going back into judgment. And so he says, now listen, you hold on to, as a company of God's people, as, a, as, as Hebrew Christians, you hold on to what grace really means. The Jews are trying to call you back to law, to Sinai, to, to coming under that awful covenant that only brought judgment. You have come to Mount Zion. You're coming to, to the one, the blood has been shed for you. The forgiveness is offered to you. You come and make sure you're in the good of that. For our God is a consuming fire. We must not, not misunderstand grace. We must never think that God has stopped being what he was in the Old Testament. He is still the same God, but now he can show his mercy. He can show his love. He can express it to us in this remarkable way because of shed blood at Calvary. May the Lord help us to appreciate what we have in Christ. So remember chapter 12. The importance of endurance in the life of faith, of understanding why suffering comes our way, of looking off onto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Uh, the importance of grace in the life of faith. Think of these, this, this example of, of Esau, and if we can draw any practical things out of it in a practical sense, not really dealing with uh, just Christians going off the road a little bit, but, but you think of it, how many times do we make the choice in daily life to to somehow put the temporary and, and the, the things that taste good, the, 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 the things that motivate us in our lives can become very shallow. Uh, and we don't remember our blessing and our birthright we have in the Lord. So just remember that uh, the importance of grace, of appreciating what grace is uh, and, and of resting in the promises of God and appreciating our privileged position. Now I've talked long enough and i trust that you'll be able to take something away from this uh, and that you will uh, be able to understand hebrews 12 a little better as a result of our quick it had to be rapid fire look at this wonderful chapter thank you again